In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are in the midst of what is sometimes called the pattern of Christian truth. We are always in the midst of the pattern of the Christian truth. But particularly when the liturgical life of the Church ramps up as it does, in order to position you and me to behold the brightness of Pascha, we began with the five pre-Lenten Sundays, each one of them a seminar each one of them the highest possible theology, each of them an exercise in that asceticism to which our baptisms commit us. We recall that we began at the beginning with Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, whose desire triggers everything else. Since unless we desire with desire, it is not going to happen. And therein lies a great deal of that famous pattern of Christian truth. We've got to want it, and then it is ours. The publican and the Pharisee acquainted us in the second of the pre-Lenten Sundays with that primordial Christian truth concerning the lethal, the destructive effect of all human pride. All of it. And the miraculous effect within each person's personal life of that which destroys pride, namely humility, which is, according to all the great fathers of the Church, the single most important virtue virtue meaning strength, in existence, without which not one thing that we think or do has anything whatsoever to do with eternity. As that man said, ideas have consequences, and pride's consequences kill, just as humility's consequences give both light and life, even life eternal. In the third week, we, we met the prodigal son, a youngster totally self-absorbed, totally numb to the other, even when the other was his own father, who had to go through horrible sin 
exile, hunger, in order to come to repentance and to return. The fourth of the five pre-Lenten Sundays brought us to the last judgment and the great pattern of truth of that gospel is that the other, that other one, him, her, they, them, even the least of the brethren, the person in my estimation being the most despicable, even the least of my brethren, is always Jesus Christ. We also encountered in the Sunday of the Last Judgment the absolute refutation of that currently popular betrayal of truth, the revival of the old heresy, the destructive heresy of apocatastasis, that is, the bad idea that all will be saved, which of course is the denial of that radical human freedom with which every person is endowed by God. A freedom so radical and so disturbing that yes, we can even say no to God. The fifth and culminating pre-Lenten Sunday is the fruit that is born by the preceding four. If you and I have actually consumed the pattern of truth of those four Gospels, you and I find ourselves curiously empowered, curiously enabled to do that which is so difficult for me and perhaps for one or two of you, and that is to forgive. Forgiveness Sunday, the appropriate use of that radical personal freedom programmed into every human being by God. Forgiveness as a deliberated, premeditated act which restores the Christian to the fullness of the pattern of Christian truth, the fullness of faith, to hope and love, the fullness of life eternal itself, that eternal life being nothing other than union with Christ, who is our eternal life. These preliminary Sundays, which introduce us to the pattern of Christian truth in all its grandeur and in all of its disturbing character, position us uniquely to then enter and to incorporate within the mind and heart of each of us the reality of the 40-day fast. 
this 40 days period being the deciding factor as to whether you and I will in fact behold the brightness of Pascha, or whether we will not, and instead we will only have a very long liturgical service in the middle of the night, followed by a big and famous meal. We are then brought by those Sundays to the first of the Lenten Sundays, the Sunday of Orthodoxy itself, or and that Sunday celebrates the restoration of the icon. Ho, ho, ho. Don't those Greeks just love a pun? Don't they love a word with a double entendre, with more than one meaning? Of course, it's the restoration of the icon, because God is the first iconographer, and the first icon he makes is Adam, our father who is made in the image, the icon, of the living God, which gives Adam and all his descendants, among whom you and I exist, our most basic role of all, that is to be iconic, to be the iconic representative of God on earth, to be a revelation of God to everyone whom we meet, friend, loved one, enemy, stranger. The second of the Sundays, the Sunday of St. Gregory Palamas, is also a Sunday of Orthodoxy, also a restoration of the image, also an assertion of that wonderful theme, the pattern of Christian truth. He is the great 14th century Hesychast, Isichastis, a man of stillness. Stillness in his head, stillness in his heart, stillness in his well-managed emotions. The man of interiorized silence. It is St. Gregory Palamas who will organize the Church's entirely adequate reply to the Augustinian West in his defense of a theology in which God is fully present to the baptized, communicating Christian, and in which, through the discipline and training of mastery of the spiritual life, at the center of which is the discipline practice of the prayer of Jesus, the prayer of the heart. St. Gregory Palamas bases his powerful rejoinder to the West's broken Christianity and his endless theorizing about God and man. He bases his reply on his personally experienced vision of the uncreated light of Tabor available to the simplest orthodox practitioner of hesychasm, no matter who he is. And of course, the Sunday of St. Gregory Palamas is also another triumph of orthodoxy over heresy, 
which darkens and dissipates the God-man relationship, which of course is why the New Testament commands us to avoid heretics. And once again, you and I stand before the incredible majesty and beauty of that pattern of Christian truth which the Church presents to us, presents to our heads and to our hearts all together. About this pattern of Christian truth, the pattern is not something abstract, it's not theory, the pattern is Christ himself and our life with him, but more importantly, our life in him. Jesus is not my pal. He is my life. He is my one single hope of surviving the death of my body. He is make or break. He is everything. Or he is nothing at all. You know what we have remarked over the years so many times in this room, how many times we have remembered what a wise person said, an elder of Athos, about what it's all about. The whole thing, scripture, patristic explanations of scripture, the life of the church, and so forth. And you could tell me this story probably better than I can tell you myself. In this story, as the story went, there is you or me, and there is Jesus Christ. And he confronts me or you and all of us personally, individually. He is standing right in front of me, in front of you, and he looks you in the eye. We are totally engaged with this confrontation. This is more frontal than most of us are comfortable with. And Christ stands there and he speaks. What he says to us is in the interrogative. It is four little one-syllable words if he happens to be speaking to us in English. He asks me, he asks you, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? Emphasize the words as you will. You get four different, five different sentences out of one little sentence. But the question is, what do you want? And you and I understand, without arguing the matter with him or with ourselves, that what is meant is, what do I want most of all, more than anything, more than everything else? What do I want? That is the scope of the Lord's question. That is its actual content. That is its significance in this little reduction of everything to one little thing.
And you and I have to answer the question. And we realize that the answer to the question entails a struggle. Since only an answer that is as comprehensive, comprehensively true as is Christ's question to begin with, only that kind of answer will be adequate to the situation into which the Lord has put us. And we may even be a little taken aback at how difficult the simple question turns out to be. Because after all, since you asked me, for heaven's sakes, what do I want? What does it mean? What am I after when I visit a really high-end mall? What do I want when I'm surfing the web? Well, exploring the endless corridors of Amazon.com? What do I want? What do I want when I'm all by myself, walking somewhere, just thinking about something, sitting down somewhere, probably in Starbucks? What do I want? So I clear out, as I formulate an adequate answer to the question, I clear out all the cluttering, frivolous, cheap, shallow, and forgive me, even obscene desires that clog my interior life, the arteries of my spiritual heart and my spiritual mind. No, those are not answers adequate to that question. And what am I left with after sweating the question, after being troubled by it, even deeply disturbed? Whatever. Whatever it turns out to be that you, that I, that we really want. Whatever I come up with, and I give my answer, and perhaps in giving my answer to the Lord, it turns out that what I desire, what I thirst for, what I hunger for, more than anything else in the world, is not so nice. I pronounce the words perhaps red-faced with shame, or surprised by the actual facts of what it is I hunger for, as I live out the days of a human life on the local home planet. And then, I have answered. My answer is out there in the public square. My answer is there to suffer the gaze of the God-man Jesus Christ himself. And what does he do? with my answer. He steps in right between me and the object of my deepest thirsting desire. And after he has taken up his position between me and what I want the most, he says, good, now choose. That's what it boils down to. 
all the scriptures, all the pre-Nicene fathers, all the fathers through Chalcedon, all the way to the icon restoring councils, all the brilliant and beyond brilliant men who have explained to us the meaning of the pattern of Christian truth. There, once again, I understand the final gift that Zacchaeus found. Zacchaeus didn't desire to indulge his curiosity. He desired exactly what he got. He desired Jesus Christ. The prodigal son didn't want his father's kingdom and at this point a good bath and a meal. He wanted the father standing for God. And he too got what he wanted. The last judgment is not predicated on how I treat people I don't care for very much. Because in treating with other people, I am always dealing with Jesus Christ. And here we are today, you and me, at the foot of the cross, right smack dab in the middle of the 40-day fast. But we are not here for the cross. We are here for the Christ who is hanging on the cross, dying on the cross. And therefore we know that the cross is really a door. It is a passage. It is a journey. And that this door is hanging on the tomb where Christ will lie for a while and from which Christ will rise from death, trampling down death by death. And this day, the worship of the Holy Cross this day the pattern of Christian truth could not be clearer. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Christ. Whether we are monastics or married people, there is an asceticism entailed for all of us in the Church in that deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow through on the pattern of Christian truth. We are not taking part in this Sunday's adoration of the cross because we like crosses. <coughs> we are engaged in adoring the cross because today it is just there that we happen to find Jesus Christ. And again, there is the pattern of Christian truth. It is one single word, Christ, 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 Christ. Is this not, by the way, those of you with good memories and a bit of history under your belts, 
Is this not the meaning of that famous conversation one evening up in Russian Alaska between St. Germain and the Russian naval officers, those brilliant young men from Petersburg, young with their whole brilliant careers ahead of them? Did St. Germain not ask them, in fact, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? What do you want more than anything else in the world? I myself once asked an elder on Mount Athos what he looked for in either a recruit proposing himself as a novice for this elder's monastic community or in someone asking to become, while remaining in the world, while being married or whatever, one of his spiritual children. He replied without any hesitation, with two little words, just two. What he looked for was Eucharistic hunger. Because Eucharistic hunger is a hunger for Jesus Christ. And that is the pattern of Christian truth. All truth is there. This pattern of Christian truth is not an academic matter. It is not theory. In honor of St. Patrick's feast day, we will end with one of his most famous legacies, that famous old Celtic poem, called The Deer's Cry, apparently written in 433. We're not going to read the whole poem, but I'm going to point out some characteristics of it because you can find the poem anywhere. It's called The Deer's Cry. I've always been taken by that. What does the deer cry out? And why are we talking about a deer? It, it turns out that he had found out that the Druids were going to assassinate him and the people around him. But he had to go from A to B to from X to Y, and so you did that using your feet, and you did that, therefore, exposed as you went on dirt trails from here to there. He was at his most vulnerable, and he, he is concerned about this. So... The deer comes into it in a way that I will mention at the very end. But here's the pattern of Christian truth in the year 433. Way out on the island of Ireland, under extremely primitive conditions, St. Patrick said, I arise today through the strength of heaven, his own muscles don't move his bones to get up out of bed. I arise today through the strength of heaven, light of the sun, splendor of fire, speed of lightning, swiftness of the wind, depth of the sea, stability of the earth, firmness of the rock, it is Christ. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me. His strength is not there. God's is. 
God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me, God's host to save me, alone or in multitude. Christ, shield me today against wounding. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in the eye that sees me, Christ in the ear that hears me. You get the picture. To quote our abbot, one of his most famous phrases, St. Patrick gets it. He got it. He had it. The pattern of Christian truth is Christ. To be with Christ is to be with everything. To have Christ is to have it all. And there is where we stand today, in the middle of the great fast, hoping that we will see the light and the brightness of Pascha in some week's time, hoping that as St. Patrick needed so desperately, as the assassins were hunting him, that Christ would be everywhere. There it is. The pattern of Christian truth turns out to be not so much something that you and I know, but something that we are. And that is the whole story. In all its grandeur, its simplicity, its truth, its capacity to rescue you and me from our own graves, Amen.